Hello again, my friends, and welcome to Jorgensen Soundbox, a sandbox of sounds. I called it a sandbox so I could publish whatever I wanted. And sometimes I like to use this show to help you get rich and sometimes to help you stay rich. In previous episodes, like Jason Hitchcock, Nick Huber, and Cody Sanchez, we talked in detail about their strategies for how they're building their wealth in a wide variety of ways. But today I talked to Phil Huber, the chief investment officer at Savant Wealth Management and author of the new book, The Allocator's Edge, which explores dozens of different alternative assets for potential investments to diversify and protect your hard-earned cash. Um, we explore a few in detail, like catastrophe reinsurance, which I'd never heard of before, talk crypto and when the investment advising industry may come around and be able to actively participate. We talk about writing books and we talk a little bit about when and how financial advisors should or could fit into uh, your life. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. Well, Phil Huber, certified financial advisor. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for coming on and certified professional accountant. Is that what the CPA Close. stands for? No, so I, I don't have a CPA. I've got oh. a CF. I have a CFP, which is certified financial planner, and then a CFA, chartered financial analyst. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a oh, lot of no. letters flying around LinkedIn. I don't even know what they <laughs> yeah. all mean. You, you, you don't want me to do your accounting. <laughs> Um, so you told me, uh, very clearly that none of this show will be financial advice, correct? Though it will all be about the advice that you give other people about their finances and the book that you have written about financial advice in, in a indirect way. Correct. <laughs> Can I title this podcast, a shitload of financial advice from Bill Huber? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, what, what do you, what do you learn as a, as a CFA? Um, I know a fair amount of people with it, but it's not, it, it's actually like still a little unclear to me what all the different letters and certifications and series is, is are. So like, what do you, what do you pick up going through that kind of process? Yeah, I would describe, so I, I the order I did those in, this is well over, this is a little over, over a decade ago when I started. So I started the CFA, uh, shortly after college and that's like a multi-year you know, three-level uh, program uh, to get the letters, and so that I, I would describe that as just being very investment-focused, like a, a kind of a mile deep. Um, whereas the CFP is is more broad. Investments is like one of several modules, including like estate planning and retirement planning and tax planning, and so there's just a lot more. Like it's more of a comprehensive um, wealth management type designation. So. Uh, you know, the way I would describe it, like for our company and, and a lot of advisors out there, um, most of them, the ones that are client facing tend to be not always, but tend to be CFPs um, because they're doing more comprehensive planning work. Whereas in my role as CIO of Spent, um, even though I have both, I, you know, I probably lean on the, the CFA more just given that my area is more focused on investing. And so, you know, it, I, it's funny, like I, I, when I think back to the curriculum, there's so many things you end up never using once. Uh, yeah. but you, yeah. you have to learn it to get through the program so and it's because like if you get the cfa you can take it a number of different directions you don't have like you don't have to go into wealth management you could go into derivatives trading or or bottom-up stock picking or fundamental analysis there's a lot of different avenues you can explore within the investment industry so i mean i think most people's experiences they tend to you know they, they learn everything for the time and then as time goes on they, they probably forget a decent amount of it um and, and don't end up using a good 
chunk of it, but I think it's, it's some of it ends up being pretty relevant. And then I think we, you know, just the, the credentials uh, themselves, I think carry some weight in terms of career progression. Um, and then it just, you know, again, just through networking, being part of the local society can be helpful in your, in, in your career. So uh, for me, for me, it's been a worthwhile experience to, to do so. And I, I found it to be valuable, even though it was a big time commitment way back when. Yeah, you kind of have to, I mean, to be like a professional in the industry, but what, what is the, um, is there value in there for like normal people to go and learn things? Like if, if you just want to have like a super, super healthy financial life, um, do you think you're better off like getting a CFP or a CFA or is that mad overkill? Is it better or worse than like an MBA, for example? Oh, I mean, if you weren't, if you weren't planning on like making it your career or something in the investment industry, but just rather wanted to be like financially sound personally, you don't need those designations. There's cost to it in terms of the registration and the exam taking and the ongoing annual kind of dues and, and expenses and things. And so I, I think for most people, it's just, you know, there's certainly, I think that's a, that's a noble thing to want to, you know, have a good financial house that's in order. But I think in terms of how you go about that, either hire someone like like us to, to help you with that, or, or, if, or if you're sort of DIY inclined and want to do it yourselves, I think there's a lot of great, you know, resources out there online um, that, that people can kind of look to to just improve their financial picture what what is at what point does a, uh having a financial planner or advisor become like you're an idiot for not doing that i think it, it, it like the, the need and value tends to kind of rise i think exponentially with the, your your complexity in life and how you're but i think a lot of the major life events tend to be the trigger points for people in terms of when they seek out an advisor, whether it's getting married or having their first kid or buying their first home. I mean, that that's, you know, for the, for the, you know, 30 something year olds that, 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 you know, typically have those types of things happen. They'll engage with in a relationship and then it gets more complex as your estate grows and you have a larger household balance and different, you know, if you've switched jobs over your you know lifetime and you've got multiple, you know, accounts sitting in different places and you want to consolidate it and have just more of a, strategy behind what you're doing as opposed to just a bunch of different you know disparate accounts in different places that there's no real kind of plan behind and so um yeah i think i think as your as your picture gets more complex and, and you want someone to um kind of quarterback things for you i think where, where most people end up falling short of when they're trying to do it on their own is that you know it's just not a priority because people are busy you have your own job and your own career and family life and hobbies and all these other things you want to use your limited time for the, I think the last thing most people want to be doing unless they really have an interest or, or passion for it is, you know, sitting around managing their finances and, you know, a, a lot, you know, there's a lot of good habits and practices that you want to like lean on the advisor to kind of automate and do for you and, and not just like put on the back burner yourself. So I think, I think it's, it's, you know, people that are comfortable delegating and that can find somebody they trust and that has the competency, you know, that, that, that can be, you know, quite valuable to them. How do you, uh, how do you know who's like, a good and trustworthy CFA or CFP or like, how, do you, how do you be sure that you got the right person for the job? Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to do your homework. The The challenge with this type of profession relative to being a doctor or a lawyer is that there's a lower hurdle to just like put your hang, your name on a shingle and say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm, I'm a financial advisor. You know, almost anyone could really do that. Um, so I think looking to, to, I think it's helpful to have designations like the CFP that are sort of, a, you know, it doesn't mean that anyone with a CFP is, is automatically someone you should hire, but I think it's a good starting point that they should have, you know, a CFA or a CFP or some other valuable credential as sort of a baseline just to measure their 
competency. And I think just doing, again, asking meaningful questions, interviewing multiple, don't just find one person and say, mm-hmm. okay, like, sure, you seem smart enough, I'll hire you. <laughs> like, it has to feel like a good fit. It's got to, you know, you don't want to be switching advisors constantly throughout your life. So I think you want to, you know, measure twice, cut once, interview a number of people, do research and homework, make sure there's no red flags that you encounter, do some some digging on the parent firm that they work for and what their kind of credibility and status and stature is, what services do they offer, how do they get paid, you know, just come up with, you know, a list of good questions to ask and ask them consistently uh, across the number of different advisors that you might be evaluating. And then again, just, you know, you, you want to find someone you're comfortable with, someone that you feel, you know, would be your first, if not one of your first, you know, calls when something big happens in your life that affects your finances and that, and, and someone you could, you know, actually enjoy spending time with because you're going to meet with them several times a year over hopefully many years. And so you want it to be a mutually, uh, you know, beneficial relationship in that sense. So, um, a lot of, you know, sort of qualitative and quantitative ways to, to measure and evaluate an advisor, but it's not a perfect science, um, either. So do you have clients who, um, I mean, there's so, there's so many like best practices in this world, I think. Um, and I know every everybody has a little bit different situation and every question you ever a- get asked to the first two words out of your mouth are, it depends. Um, but how much range is there in the services that you and recommendations that you can provide for a client? Like, do you have a client who comes in with like, I don't care, like, I want to get uh, you know, $10 million in the bank in 10 years. And I do not care how much risk there is. And like YOLO me like real hard, or do you like, or would you like not do that because that CFA malpractice, like how, what is actually the range of outcomes related to like the possible range of, of outcomes? Sure. I mean, first off, I, I've yet to have a, a prospect or a client say YOLO me so hard in a meeting, but I, I look forward to that day. That's, ugh, people um, are so boring. I know, right? Um, you know, we have to be responsible. I mean, it's. I, I think oftentimes when when those types of scenarios present themselves, like we have to be realistic with what the realm of possibilities are and what the likelihood of those outcomes are of occurring. It'd be great if we could say, "Hey, like I want to quadruple my money in the next year," but like we can't as a fiduciary say that that's something we can reliably do for people. So, I, you know, I think sometimes investors who don't necessarily have great context from a, a kind of market history standpoint, they don't really know what's possible or what typical returns look like over a long period of time. Um, so they might not have the, the right expectations in place. And so we don't want to necessarily um, just like let them sit, dictate, hey, like we shoot the light, you know, just like throw caution to the wind, like, but, you know, that's just, that's not what we do. We're, we're in the business of growing wealth responsibly and preserving it. But at the same time, um, we, we, we don't want to take any undue risk and, and we want to be big, big believers in diversification and and so, um, you know, for, for some people that might not be the right fit, but for us, it's, it's very, very much a personalized experience. Um, the, the ultimate portfolio that we implement on behalf of a client is going to be tailored to their, you know, needs and objectives. And so that's, that's the first part is identifying what are you trying to achieve with your money? Um, and what is that? And then kind of backing into what a, what a portfolio might look like for them based on their risk tolerance and time horizon and all these things. Um, and so we have our, our in-house strategies that we manage and offer, and they, they span the risk spectrum from very conservative to the more aggressive. Now, the, our, our version of the most aggressive is probably not yellow me so hard, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we, we, we you you're know, missing a market opportunity, man. I'm telling you, <laughs> we'll, we'll see, maybe, maybe uh, we'll talk in a few months, but, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think we want to be, um, 
flexible. And so we, we've got our in-house strategies and I think it'd be, it'd be silly of us. You know, we have a, a, a internal investment philosophy that we adhere to and we have an investment committee. So it's not like each client's portfolio is, is so individualized that they have different holdings than the next person. It's more about the, the sizing and weighting of those positions in different asset classes based on, on their, their risk capacity and tolerance. Um, but but at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're delivering a consistent experience for clients at similar risk profiles. And so we we typically do that through the use of model portfolios and model portfolios. Um, you know, it, it's not meant to say, hey, like we just operate in a vacuum and um, it, it's 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 not really that cookie cutter as it sounds. It's more this is our starting point. And then there might be some tweaks to this model based on your existing holdings that you transfer over, the different types of accounts that you have and their their tax characteristics the amount of assets you have, other types of preferences and values. And so those models are a little bit malleable and we have different versions of, of, of uh, models at different risk levels, depending on what the client's looking to do. But ultimately it's about, you know, we want to have some, some uh, you know, guidelines and, and governance established at the investment committee level. It's not just me and my role making decisions and choosing which investments we use. We have a dedicated research team that helps support those due diligence efforts. And then, the kind of governance side is is a combination of, of members of our executive team and a handful of our senior advisors and, and myself and our director of research and you know we meet monthly and then ultimately set investment policy across the firm. Okay. So and, and I think uh, oh, no, yeah, just one more thing there, just the that that's a great for a firm our size and we've got over I think over seventy advisors now. That you know think uh, yeah I like to think of and yeah we've got twenty offices or so across like seven states so we're we're a decent sized RAA and because of that. We want to have the investment function be more of a centralized resource that all of our advisors, regardless of which office they're in, can tap into. You know, they're they're busy with their um, day to day of of managing relationships and doing more of the planning work. And so, ultimately, the the portfolios exist in, in service to those plans, but they don't want to be the ones building the, those portfolios. And so, they've got our team of CFAs and other investment people that can. You know, be be the nerds in the back office, uh, <laughs> doing all the fun interviews and things like that. Yeah. So, there, so it sounds like, uh, and correct me if I'm oversimplifying this, but it sounds like basically there are a, some number of building blocks or tools, um, vehicles of investment that you guys get really familiar with and competent in, and then those become kind of what gets used for an individual client's portfolio in a different mix of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then, yeah, like again, it, it's we're very conscious of, of of clients' existing portfolios that they map over and wanting to be, be, be tax sensitive to how we transition that to our preferred mix as well. Yeah, that's that gives me some um, some solace because I I've been reading your book um, for the last week or so, basically um, the little little pre release copy, and yeah. it is like I was already whatever the financial world is like big and complicated and there's a ton of stuff that you can't possibly fathom in there. And I thought I kind of like had an idea of how big the world was and how much I wouldn't understand. And this book showed me like how much bigger and how much less likely I am to ever understand all of it. Um, and it's like two to 10 times bigger than I thought it was. It's really, really interesting. Like this is such a good overview of, um, all of the possible sort of, universe of investable assets um that it gave me this like holy shit how could anybody ever actually be familiar with all of these options and like compare them relatively so to know that you've got 70 advisors and even within that you're kind of like constantly 
um, refocusing on specific assets and then using those to apply to specific client portfolios. It's not like there's somebody who actually gets all of these on a detailed level because um, that feels quite impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we want to have the advisors be knowledgeable enough about these alternatives and, and comfortable enough to be conversant in them when they're discussing them with clients. Um, but at the same time, we also don't expect them to, have, to, to go a mile deep as well. And it's probably not a good thing for the end client that they go a mile deep because, you know, again, most of our clients, they come from varying levels of financial sophistication, hence why they are hiring us. Um, and so for, for us to be just beating them over the head with like financial jargon and, and CFA type stuff, like we need to, to me, that was like the missing gap from an education standpoint in, in our industry was that there just seemed to be, there's a lot, there's a lot of alternative investments out there. And, and more so as time goes on, as we continue to improve technology and get broader access to people. But at the same time, that's a bit of a risk if, if people aren't equipped to understand them and effectively implement them for their clients. And so um, you know, we want to make sure that they're they, they know enough to be dangerous when they're in the field talking to to clients and prospects. But you know, if it ever gets to a situation where they really need to kind of call in the, the, the special forces, you know, or me and me and my team, like we that's a big part of of my role is is interfacing with clients and our advisors and and just continuing to um, communicate and espouse our investment philosophy to them. It's, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about like who a typical client is like the, the kind of the profile um but maybe in in on the way there um we can address this kind of it seems like a truism i'm curious if it is from your perspective that like diversification preserves wealth but focus creates it like in you your you sit at this kind of nexus of people who have like become wealthy and are now seeking to make it more efficient and preserve it and pass it on and make it tax efficient like do you see people who come in with Hey, I've spent 20 years in a very concentrated, like small business position or, you know, real estate. And I now need to kind of diversify, protect and consolidate. Um, or do you actually like see people go from zero to wealthy, diversified the whole time over the same time horizon? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's more probably more the former, like the families that are coming to us, they've spent, you know, much of their adult lives building whatever nest egg is there and that that's been through, you know, um, responsible saving and, and hard work and, and whether it's building a business or maybe they're a doctor or something else, but they've, they've really spent, you know, multiple decades growing what's going to ultimately support them, you know, throughout the rest of their lives and, and often into their next generation and next generation's lives. Uh, and so again, it's, it's that old saying, concentrate to get rich and, you know, diversify to, to stay rich. And so we're, you know, less in the, you know the 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 true wealth building is going to come from their own individual, you know, human capital and and career efforts and things like that. Typically, whereas we're going to come in to more say, hey, what's the how do we continue to grow this responsibly, but you know, mitigate the tails, maybe deconcentrate you a little bit, and make sure that you're not, um, you know, losing this capital to purchasing power or making any, you know, silly decisions that might put put this at risk for you know the next twenty plus years. Um, and so there, there's largely that, but at the same time, we do work with a number of younger clients. Um, and, and I think too, is it's not that we have to go like, you know, balls to the wall aggressive with them to try to really grow this wealth. It, it, you can, you can. The preferred term is YOLO, Phil. <laughs> yes. But like, you don't, you don't have to like put everything on, you know, into, you know, Shiba Inu in order to, to, <laughs> to try to, you know, to, to, you know, just like yeah. people underestimate the power of 
how early you start, how much you save, and that has such a more of a dramatic impact on your terminal wealth than the actual rate of return itself. And so I think that's a big part of the younger folks who work is just encouraging them to just get in the market, get invested, stay invested. Don't spend, don't don't waste brain cells trying to figure out how to time things. Like, yeah, if you want to, you know, have a portion of your money that's dedicated to speculative efforts, whether that's in stocks or crypto or startups or, or what have you, that's totally fine. If it is, as long as it's not, you know, gonna gonna deviate you from your plan or, or cause any issues from a um, ongoing kind of cash flow perspective, but you know, yeah, there there could be that speculative portion, or and but you still want to have that kind of you know anchor core portfolio that is you know again low cost, tax efficient, still has you know a, a growth tilt to it, and focus more on equities. But like that alone, you know, I think you you can surprise people when you show them the math of if you start now and you save this much and you grow your savings, like this is what it could look like in in twenty to thirty years, and and it's it, you know, again it's, it's that notion of compounding that we 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 too often take for granted that um it's one of those things that's not visible in the short term it's only it only sort of you know reveals itself over a really long time for you to really appreciate its power but i think that's a big part of, of working with younger clients it's just it, i think you know again especially now with cash at like zero and bonds you know near zero um probably talking a little bit of my book here but like again like just the combination of stocks and other higher return seeking types of alternatives, like just get invested and keep saving. That's going to be the ultimate driver of your, your wealth. How, how do you, how do you hammer that home? Like, is it with stories? Is it with math? Is it with charts? Like when you're sitting in fr- across from a, you know, a high paid, like say 24 year old and trying to get them from 5%, you know, uh, savings rate to a 25% savings rate. Like what do you, what is that story like? Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have to show them the math a little bit, but you don't want to just like put a spreadsheet in front of their face. I think that's that's kind of the um, the craft of what we do is trying to provide a narrative and tell stories, but doing so with with backing with that with data and numbers. And so I think it's it's you know maybe it's just a sign of the times, and it's been such a, like a long kind of buy the dip type of market um, that that I think we're, we're pleasantly surprised with with the calls we get or the messages we get when there's a little correction and, you know, the clients are like, Hey, should I, you know, I'm putting money in every month. Should I put a little bit more in now? And so I, I think it's good to see that it shows that our kind of coaching efforts are helping and that we're, you know, showing them that, Hey, like you're, you're, you're never going to be the master market timer, but when the market's on sale, you want to be active if you, if you got some extra cash sitting around. So, um, I, I think it works pretty well. And then I think, you know, again, we are, for our, for the people that have, have really grown that nest egg, um, there's certainly a fear that can come when it's a larger dollar amount that you might not have that same fear when it's a smaller dollar amount, um, it, for the same percent decline, it's a little more painful for people when it, when it's a, you know, larger. So I, I think that there's a natural fear, especially for, for clients that have lived through a number of really kind of deep type of market downturns, they do, especially if they're getting close to retirement or just got into retirement, the, the risk of, you know, having another 2008 happen, it just is, you know, they just don't want to do that. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're not risking the portfolio so that if, if a you know, bad scenario like that shows up, that they're going to you know, capitulate at the worst possible moment, go to cash when they should be rebalancing. And so that, that's why we're here, because I think left to their own devices, sometimes people would probably act on their own worst instincts because we're all human and that's just what we're wired to do. And so I think you know we're not perfect either as advisors. Everybody's human in this game. I just think you know, we, this is what we do. This is why we get up in the morning. And so I think if we can 
really be there in those in the you know ten to twenty percent of those challenging times um, to, to give people the conviction to stick with the plan, stick with the portfolio that's designed to you know sustain them for for many many years. Um, you know that with those sometimes those those decisions are irreversible. Like like the people that bowed out in early two thousand nine. A lot of them never got back in, and when you think about the a just the selling at the bottom, but also the missing out on the rebound, like there's not a if, there's not enough you know time in the world to make up for that type of decision. So I think we take a lot of pride, and you can't save everybody. Like the, there, that's what big you know crisis type periods do. There's just going to be some people that fold or can't take it, but I think we take a lot of pride in, in really you know doing our best work in those times of need and and um, you know, those are the, if you look back and say, okay, well, what if we would have sold at this point? And you can show us, that's the nice thing is you can kind of show us when here's, here's a, you know, congratulations, you stuck with it here. If you wouldn't have, here's what you would have missed out on. Um, and so I think people appreciate that too. How do you, how do you prepare? You're, you're like the outsourced emotional control, right? Like you're the, you're the person who sits between like me as a client doing something really stupid. And um, like how, how do you prepare to, be stone faced wall facer man in that moment and to know that like that's the right time to not panic and prepare not just your client but also yourself to like hold through that time and not go back and start second guessing what you thought you knew i think it's you have to humanize yourself and not talk down to people and and you have to recognize the reality of the fears that people have um because it's it, it's tough to live through those. I mean, it's it's amazing to think in hindsight when you go back to like, you know, late March of, of last year. Literally, no one in their right mind was gonna was saying, "Oh, you're in a year and a half from now, we're gonna be at new highs." Like, there's if, if you if you're saying that that's what you thought, you're you're full of shit. <laughs> um, yeah, show me the journal entry. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so I, 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 but but no, but again, like that, I think that's part of it too. Is like we can't know. In advance, what's going to ultimately be the outcome, but we do have history as a guide. It's not not to say that you know past is prologue and that every cycle is going to repeat like the last one, but you know there's been enough of these to know that a you can't predict them in advance when they come. Usually, usually the cause of it is something that's not being talked about in the news, and um, you can't predict the, the length and severity of them in advance, and so beyond that i think it's more like you have to be in an asset allocation construct that is you know if you can't live with that 20 percent drawdown or 30 percent drawdown then you, you need to be in a portfolio that you know very much reduces the risk of that type of, of scenario um that's going to come at the expense of you know lower returns but for some people that's probably the right move if, if it's going to mean you know they do or do not make make the worst decision during a crisis period so um I think I forgot what your original question was, but I think it's like, you don't want to just like dismiss people's fears. Um, and you, you want to say, Hey, like, I understand what you're going through and, and, and say, Hey, like we're, I'm going through it too. Like I'm really scared right now. This is a, this is a very uncertain time and, and I don't know what the future holds. Um, what I do know is that the market's reflecting all of our worst fears and expectations right now. That's why we just saw a 30 plus you know percent decline over a three week period. Like that's extremely rare. And it's because a black swan event happened they caught us all off guard and put us into a, a societal situation that we've never been in before and don't know what it's going to look like six months from now or 12 months from now. And so that's what the market's pricing in is that, that level of uncertainty. 
And so I think it's kind of pointing back to that is that the market is reacting to everything that's happening. It doesn't mean the markets are perfectly efficient, but I think most people would be better off behaving as though they were, um, if that makes sense in the sense that, you know, even if there are like weird random things that happen that, that like people, I think people often point to like goofy things in the market and say, ha, like that's, that's why efficient markets is a stupid concept because why on earth did this ever happen? Like there's always going to be like examples like that. But like at the same time, like, the market knows more than you any you know individual person does, and so you want to trust that like whatever prices are prices are telling you information, and whatever whatever they're telling you is generally going to be reflective of all the concern, fear, greed, whatever this being kind of you know mashed together in a pot, and, and that and that's what your price is like. It's a, it's a big marketplace. There's millions of people and participants every day coming and buying and selling. There's two sides of every trade, and so um, I think people lose sight of that sometimes when, when things get a little bit hairy. Yeah. So, um, by way of setting up your books, I think this is really like the historical context, um, is, is a good bridge for this. So you've got like it's portfolio construction and it's, it's, uh, comfort level for each individual person, you know, can you handle a 10% drawdown or a 50% drawdown kind of, um, and how, how old you are and how close you are to retirement and all of those things kind of go to your portfolio construction. Um, and there's been kind of historical best practices. And I don't know if it's your contention or your observation that it's changing, kind of, we're in the midst of this change. Um, but maybe you can like help finish setting that context for me. Yeah. So, I mean, really the, the focus of the book, it, it starts with the first chapter is on this notion of like the 60-40 portfolio. You talk about like best practices, like that for many, many years has been like the best practice in the industry of if you're going to build somebody a balanced portfolio, someone who wants it not too hot, not too cold, you know, just right. Like what better way to create a balanced portfolio, 60% of your capital in stocks for long-term growth, 40% in bonds for income and, you know, stability and diversification. Like for many decades, like that did, that did the trick. You got those were the theory this those were uncorrelated so it yeah, so, went so down it, bonds went up and vice versa exactly so you, you got your offense your offensive asset your defensive asset you know you've had a couple decades of a pretty stable low to slightly negative correlation meaning you know one goes up the other goes down vice versa and so they've they've offset each other well and oh yeah when when the 60/40 started becoming popular the 10 year treasury yield was you know in the teens and not you know down, down in the in the between one and yeah, two area where it's actually making money instead of but, so yeah, lay, yeah just so, lay there yeah. So I think there's there's some underlying assumptions with a sixty forty type portfolio that have been there for a while but aren't necessarily set in stone. And I think we we tend to have a lot of recency bias and we tend to extrapolate recent returns. And so it's not surprising that people have, have had a lot of comfort in the sixty forty um, because a it's it's served them well, particularly over the last decade. Um, B, it's it's very easy to implement and low cost. Like you could pick two to three funds and have a low cost 60-40 portfolio that you could easily rebalance. So the the implementation's easy, that the the underlying asset classes are very intuitive and easy for people to understand. I think people get stocks and bonds in a way that they maybe don't quite understand other alternative assets. So it's not hard to imagine why this has become sort of the you know security blanket for allocators and advisors and their clients when it comes to hey, well, how do you build a balanced portfolio? I think the challenges are a couple of things. You can get you know stretched equity valuations. And you know we know valuation doesn't really tell you anything about 
what the market's going to do the next year or two years, but over a longer period, you know, really, really expensive markets tend to, to for, you know, forbear lower than, than average equity returns. Um, and, and, you know, you can pick any evaluation metric today. None of them, none of them are screaming, Hey, the stock market's cheap. Um, <laughs> most of them are, are, are telling you the opposite, particularly for us, like large cap stocks. Yeah. Um, as of this moment so, in November, 2021, at least. Exactly. Yeah. So one way, one way to mitigate, mitigate that is, you know, diversify globally, you know, look outside the U S maybe those markets are priced a little cheaper, you know, look at things like small cap stocks and value stocks as a way to maybe, you know, uh, tilt away from some of that, um, expensiveness, but that, that's just, you know, one, one area to focus on the other. I think the bigger piece is why 60, 40 might be a little challenge going forward is the 40, the bonds. Um, it's really, really difficult to generate a meaningful return from a 60, 40 portfolio when your starting yield on bonds is, you know, one and a half to 2%. Like it's the, an extremely the, diplomatic way to classify recent bond performance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just the, the, the math is the math when it comes to bonds, like your starting yield is going to probably explain 90% of your future 10 year returns in, in, in whatever, you know, bond asset class that you're looking at. So when you net out inflation and obviously that's a bigger concern today and it's higher than it's historically than it's been over the last few years, you're, you're looking at, you know, um, negative real returns from, from bonds, at least for, for right now, based on where yields are and where, where inflation is. And so that's not a great recipe. And I think we know too, if there, we, we, we talk about the correlation of stocks and bonds, and I think there's an assumption that they're always going to diversify one another that that low correlation uh, aspect. But we have seen environments in the past where they do go down in concert with one another. And the reason, it, typically the variable that, that causes those two asset classes to have their correlations go up and, and potentially go down at the same time and not, not be diversifying is inflation. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not, I have no, I, my guess is as good as anyone else's as to whether the recent high inflation we've had will persist over, over a longer period of time. But I think it's a risk we need to account for and, and be prepared for. Um, and so I think, by opening up the spectrum of, of investable asset classes a little bit, you can introduce some things that maybe don't have that same level of inflation sensitivity and could still be, you know, diversifying to what you own and might have a higher expected return than you can get out of fixed income right now. So I think, you know, that that's ultimately where I wanted to start the book there, that 60 40, because I think that's where, that's where a lot of people anchor to. But at the same time, I think. The notion, like the, the the principles behind why people adopted sixty forty in the first place, remain true. Like people want to manage risk, they want to man- they want to diversify, they want to have a, a, a responsible, you know, strategic allocation that can deliver meaningful returns. So I, I think the the objectives remain the same. It's just we have a bigger toolkit now than we used to. So why limit yourself to these two kind of building blocks when there's other building blocks that can probably give you a greater odd of odds of achieving that same outcome that you're you're looking for. Yeah, a shitload of other building blocks, as it turns out. A lot of building uh, blocks, yeah. I mean, that, that's the, the funny thing with a, a term like alternatives is it all it does is tell you pretty much anything that's like not stocks and bonds, which is a pretty pretty wide universe. So um, a lot of things I was already familiar with going into the book, others or other areas that I probably you know needed to research more and get more familiar with myself. But that 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 was kind of the, the inspiration for the book was I, I in my own practice and in, in a lot of the conversations I've been having with advisors and clients about you know the portfolio and questions clients had most of the questions centered around the alternatives we were using even though they were typically like 15 to 20 percent of a client's portfolio so you've got this non-majority you know portion alternatives but it's accounting for the majority of 
of questions that people have. And I think so there's, there's just a general gap in education that I thought was worth trying to, to fill. And then I, I think about, about where I was in my own educational journey with alternatives 10 years ago. I wanted to write the book that I wish was there when I was on, on that early path going down those rabbit holes. Cause you know, I spent a fair amount of time in, in my career just, just based off interest and passion and curiosity, like digging into a lot of these different verticals uh, across, across the alternative spectrum. So um, hopefully someone out there that picks us up, you know, is, is, you know, where I was 10 years ago and finds it of value and, 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 you know, uh, gives them that, that additional confidence they need to go out and implement for their clients. Yeah. I think writing it for yourself is maybe the only way to get through it. Um, because it's, it's, a, it's a tough, yeah, you're going to spend a lot of time with it. It's, yeah. it's going to become like your, your baby. So you can't really pick a topic that you find boring. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, well, if you set out to open the spectrum and open the spectrum, you did. Um, I, w- I think so. To to kind of I don't know summarize or, or elevator pitch it. Like this whole book is a catalog of various alternative assets. Um, it is called the Alligator's Edge, um, but it really we gotta, explores, we gotta get that plug in there. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of um, a lot of just places to put your money, like other than stocks and bonds. And there's a really helpful kind of like full page spread in here that is the point of peak uh overwhelm where you can see the farthest this is like periodic table of all of these things and i don't if i eyeball this it looks like a hundred or so various alternative assets well yeah i mean so that that periodic table you're referencing i I created like a think of the periodic table of chemical elements that you learned in high school like same visual but just with investment uh, building blocks instead. So it's not just alternatives in that. I use, you know, everything from stocks, bonds, and, and alternatives just to give a kind of a view. Like that, that was the way I looked at, it, at that analogy of the, of the periodic table was not all the chemical elements got discovered at the same time. Like that, that was its multiple centuries type of process. Um, the 116 or whatever the number is that we have today. The same goes for investing. Like as time goes on, you know, people get smarter, technology gets better. We, we discover and access new asset classes and strategies. And so, and those same asset classes and strategies that get more democratized, um, broader access, lower cost, et cetera. So it's just kind of that general um, path that things on, you know, portfolios are always evolving. Our understanding of, of building portfolios is evolving. And so I think we don't want to be static with how we think about building portfolios. We just want to say, hey, like, what are the, the building blocks and raw materials that I have in front of me? How do I best combine them together to achieve a particular objective, um, you know, in, in light of expected returns. And so um, I thought that was a, a good way to, to visualize that. And, and, you know, it's like you could, you can make a lot of different combinations of those different things and, and they'll ultimately lead you to different places. But I think it's about figuring out like it has to start with the objective and the constraints. And then you kind of back into how do I want to combine these things in, into a portfolio. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a ton of options in here. It's really interesting to just see it kind of all laid out in one place, even um, a bunch of stuff I'd never even heard of things that I've heard of, but not really considered as alternative assets before. Um, it, there's a lot of directions I want to go. So I want to go a little deeper into inflation uh, before okay. we kind of go into a few of these specifics, because there was a really good um, two by two uh, little matrix of like, high inflation, low inflation, accelerating inflation, decelerating inflation. And it was like, there's all sorts of different assets that you can use from this table based on your own hypothesis, um, not Phil's because he won't 
tell you uh, his opinion of what is going to happen with inflation and like things that perform well. It's not just does inflation exist. It's is it accelerating or decelerating? Is it currently high or low? Um, and I thought that was an interesting kind of nuance to it and a bunch of different assets that are like the uh, the right play to run if you think that things are going this particular direction. Yeah, I mean, there you, you can you can think of like these four quadrants and these two variables and two variable variables being economic growth and inflation, and then the, you get the four quadrants by is it you know high and rising or or you know high and falling, and so you can map historical like asset class returns over those different economic regimes and get a sense of like what types of things perform well or poorly in different environments. Not that we have any crystal balls to exactly what environment we're in at a given point in time. But I think, again, that, that's the point of diversification is a, a humbly saying, I don't know. So I'm going to, you know, if, if we had a total crystal ball as to what the future would look like, you just put it in that one asset that would do the best, but we don't have that. So we can say, hey, here's a number of different potential outcomes. I want to be prepared in some form or fashion for all of them. And I think like that's a good a good point there is, is even just like fixed income. Like we've been kind of bad mouthing bonds for, you know, a little bit here on this podcast, but I don't want that to come across as like we don't own fixed income in our portfolios or the client like client no like clients still have bonds some have decent allocations of bonds some of it has to do with again they still have a role in a portfolio to you know suppress volatility and, and provide a source of, of you know stability of the portfolio as well as hey like deflationary environments even at low yields bonds can still do really well when the rest of the world might not be doing so well in a, in a you know low growth deflationary type of spiral so you want to have bonds that you know even if the, the yield's not that enticing there could still be a time and a place to, to have them so again you want to have some assets that are, are you know sensitive to the different parts of the cycle and also some asset classes that are a bit more completely insulated like a, a good example i use in the book is there's a chapter on insurance like securities an area it's an area called uh, catastrophe reinsurance yeah and, and i heard you mention that in another podcast and that was something i'm i'm interested in that was a totally new concept to me so i'd yeah, love to so actually there, explain that a little bit yeah there's like there's a whole uh spectrum of of uh securities that, that are kind of broadly bucketed as insurance linked securities the most common or most well known which, which is things uh called catastrophe bonds where essentially you're, you're accessing reinsurance risk which is um, taking, you know, so essentially earning a premium as compensation for bearing the risk of, of a potential, you know, large scale insurable natural disaster type event. Um, and so the, the reason that can be valuable is A, is the asset class is, and as long as we have like kind of data for, um, has, has exhibited almost stock like returns with, you know, lower volatility and essentially zero correlation to stocks or bonds. And there's an intuitiveness to that is to like, oh, yeah, like, stock market being down 20% isn't going to cause a giant hurricane to go off or something like that. So it's a, it's a, it's one of those like very few like truly structurally uncorrelated asset classes that yeah like there's risk to it certainly um that's why you, you, you it's earned the premium it has over time but like reinsurers have been around for centuries like some of the you know biggest reinsurers in the world are have been around you know there's like Swiss Re and others that have been you know they've been around for a few hundred years and they've been profitable over over that time period because they've effectively priced that risk and and earned more in premium than they paid out in claims over time. So essentially that sort of business model is now an investable asset class where that investors can tap into uh, through funds. Um, and there's a handful of funds that provide direct exposure to that asset class that 
again, it's not a free lunch and they're, and they're you know, it, it can have bad years. And, and the last few years are actually a good example where we've had a, a higher degree of, of um, material, you know, insured losses uh, from, from different events, whether they be you know, hurricanes or wildfires or what have you. But at the same time, like that's not going to happen every year. And so that market adapts when, when they have bad loss years, rates go up, your premiums go up. And so over time, you, you tend to uh, get that low correlation benefit, but hopefully a meaningful return to go with it. So um, that, that's just one idea of something like if we think about, we go back to that, like that matrix and that kind of four quadrants, catastrophe reinsurance has zero, you know, connection to growth or inflation. So that, that, that makes it a really valuable diversifier in a portfolio. Um, so not every alternative is like that, but it's just one example of things that you can start to think about adding to a traditional mix that can ultimately create overall better portfolio resiliency. Interesting. So is that you're actually buying stock in those reinsurers? No, no. So there, I mean, there are some publicly traded reinsurers, but the, the, the caveat there is you're, like, like any publicly traded company, you're going to have some market beta to that. So the, these are actually like actual like um, catastrophe bonds, like individual like securities. Um, some are more liquid than others. Um, there's also a, a form of, of reinsurance called quota shares. It's more illiquid, but um, regardless, like the, you're you're actually just accessing the the pure risk as opposed to the, um, you know, balance sheet or capital markets, you know, fluctuations of the of the of the reinsurer itself. So I, you know that that's an interesting area to us. Interesting is it, and, and you said it's um well it's uncorrelated in the sense that uh a twenty percent decline in the stock market doesn't cause a hurricane, but the reverse could be correlated. So are you just betting that the, could, I mean, the underwriting could, is like good it, enough to outpace that? Or yeah, I mean, the, you know, a lot of these reinsurers are they, they employ you know dozens of climate scientists and and they have really advanced catastrophe modeling software they use, and so they have a you know you're, you're betting that they can price these you know, insurance like securities in a way that like, yeah, like there's still risk there, but they're hopefully charging enough in premium that over a long, longer period of time, that they'll make money more than they pay out in claims. And that's the, that's the idea behind the, uh, the asset class. Cool. Yeah. That, that was a really interesting one. And, um, another question I had that I think is, is addressed in a lot of these, but it's just accessibility. I imagine a lot of these are not accessible to, um, the retail investor, which is industry code for normal people. Um, yeah. so, so, like, is stuff like that accessible to the, to an individual investor? It is. I think most of the categories in the book are relatively accessible today to, to the average investor. Um, some are not yet. Uh, and I say yet, cause it, I think the trend is, is growing towards, you know, more access over time, but, um, there are some limitations based on accreditation too. Like there's, you kind of think of like three buckets. There's like your, non-accredited investor like th- that might be kind of smaller dollar size and so there, there's still alternatives they can access through like mutual funds and etfs um and even and even a, a like fund structures like uh, things called interval funds that are able to hold less liquid securities but you don't have to be a credit investor to, to buy them so there's 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 that kind of bucket then accredited uh kind of opens up a different sleeve where you can start to get into different you know, some uh, limited partnership type arrangements and things like that. Uh, and then qualified purchasers like that kind of higher level of, you know, typically 5 million and above in, in investable AUM is, is what, you know, qualifies used as a qualified purchaser. And so, you know, certain areas within hedge funds and like private equity and things like that, um, some are available to accredited investors, others are limited to qualified purchasers. And so you've got some of those things that are, are outside the control of the advisor or the clients. These are what the regulations are as to who are, can or cannot access these 
these vehicles. Um, and then you just have, and then you have preferences, client preferences. Some clients just prefer to have things very liquid. Um, so that even if they have the the size to, to go into something like private equity, they might just not have the, the, the interest in it because they don't want to lock up their money for 10 to 15 years. Um, so it's, it's a lot of things you have to take into account, both at the sort of regulatory accreditation type level, but also the client preference level when it comes to things like liquidity and, and costs and, and complexity. Like, you know, you start to get into private funds, you introduce, you know, additional tax complexity with K-1s versus 1099s. You know, so, so there's a number of different factors to consider when you're looking at different types of alternatives, depending on your audience. Yeah, and the, the, I think you're dead on. The trend is towards um, greater access. It, it is cool to see stuff like, um, I don't remember, the, like Fundrise, if that's the um, real estate Yeah, they do real estate. And, yeah. And I, and I, yeah, I write about that a little bit in the book. Is, is there, in the last, particularly in the last like five years, you've seen like a proliferation of, like call it, you know, alternative investing apps or platforms that, aren't even necessarily like delivered through like intermediaries, like financial advisors or just sort of like more direct to consumer. Like anyone can go open a fundraise account. Um, to my knowledge, like same thing with things like rally or Otis, like that are focused on like collectible assets um, and things like that, or like master, or I think masterworks is um, accredited investors only if I'm not mistaken. But like, again, it's just, they're, they're on like focused on like blue chip art. So like you're seeing barriers kind of broken down a little bit where, um, Things like art and collectibles, again, like there's nothing yeah, that's, new. That's in there's your nothing, periodic table of investment, investable. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and there's, nothing, there's nothing new about those areas. What's, what's I guess what's novel today is um, this notion that you can view those as investable and, and you don't have to be an ultra wealthy like hobbyist to be able to afford them because you don't have to buy the whole thing itself and store it somewhere and all these other things. You can buy, they're getting securitized and you can buy fractional shares. I think it's, it's like, trend of fractionalization where you can you know, go to rally and build a diversified portfolio of collectibles with a, a very limited amount of money if you wanted to because the minimums are super low and all these things. So I think it's just like that, that's what's kind of interesting is like this trend towards leveraging technology to um, open up previously inaccessible asset classes um, to people. The, the, the flip to that is um, on the technology side is, is the, the dawn and kind of emergence of brand new asset classes altogether. And this is an area I know you're very familiar crypto. with. Is, is the, yeah. <laughs> We've now reached the crypto. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So, and, and you're, you know, probably well beyond me in terms of, of, you know, crypto knowledge, but, um, that's, I, I saw know, the table of contents and didn't see crypto and got real nervous. And then I was like, Oh, digital well, assets. He calls them digital assets. And it, there's like a whole section in here at the end. Um, I mean, you, you could probably have crypto could probably have its own periodic table at some point. Maybe that's oh, another, God, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> with the amount of <laughs> yeah, it's just coins like out there to... growing over like a, yeah, yeah. That's, but like, that's like a, who, who would have thought, like, think about this Bitcoin. Well, 2008, 2009 is the inception. That's, that's the dawn of the asset class before the spawn of all the other coins, like that's not that long ago. When you think of God, like no, no. other asset classes that have existed for centuries, and we have tons of data on like this is like a teenager relative to stocks. And so it's just amazing that like out of thin air, you could have this brand new asset class that I think today is probably, few, I don't know if you want to coin market cap, probably two and a half to three trillion across the entire landscape. I mean, that's, that's insane. And so it's, it's amazing. Like that's why like, the definition of what's considered alternative is con continually evolving because out of the blue, you've got this brand new large asset class that, you know, institutions are just trying to get, get their arms around and figure out what it means and if they should be investing in it. Um, 
And then, and then you have an entirely different audience, a generation of millennials and Gen Z and younger investors who the, the, all they've known is crypto because it, it came around during their you know formative years. And so to them, it's really not alternative. They're just like, oh, yeah, like I opened my Robinhood account and I trade crypto and stocks. Like, duh. Like, yeah, but please don't use like a Robinhood the, account. Um. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bad example. But like, yeah. but it, you get the idea. It's like it, what, what might be like more foreign or... or you know, my, my grandpa might not want to touch crypto with a 10 foot pole, but, you know, my cousins, you know, who are in their 20s are like, you know, eating it up with a spoon. So I think, like, depending on who you ask, like, you get a, you get a wide range of responses to different. Um, that's why, that's why alternatives is so vexing is because we can't even, like, agree as a industry on, like, what, how to, like, categorize and bucket things. Like, I, I included, a, there's a, a area in the book, I included a tweet that I did, or a tweet poll I did, like, a few years ago where I, or publicly traded REITs, like real estate, you know, investment <laughs> trusts. I was like, are, I'm like, are REITs stocks, real assets, or alternatives? And like, literally, the, the results were like split down the middle, like a third, a third, a third. It's like, and I think it was like, you know, 800 responses. So it's like, you know, I, I assume most of my followers are like in investment industry people. So it's like, we, we can't agree on what to call things. And so that it's, it, it makes it for challenging um, portfolio construction. Uh, in that sense, I mean, again, it, there's a little bit of semantics involved, but at the same time, that has real impacts on how people view certain things. Like some people have natural aversion to the word alternatives because it just might signify like something that's more complex or more illiquid or it has higher fees, and so they might shun something if it if it gets put under that bucket, even if it might have value to their to their portfolio. So I, I want to stay. I want to uh, like dive into crypto a little more because of this whole table that's uh, one of the things that i think about the most and and maybe um most bullish on um knowing that mm-hmm. everything kind of has its place but it's it's a really unique intersection right now because partly because of as you talk about like the custody issues and the uncertainty about how it fits into things so like talk to me about the the industry the investment industries sort of um current outlook on crypto and the challenges around actually holding it and, and like what is what are clients asking for versus what are you able to deliver and, and how do you kind of see that all unfolding yeah i mean it's clearly there's demand there i mean that's that's easy to figure like, out um, among your clients no just like i would say just, uh, the general like, the investing okay. public or just the investment industry like there where, where there's demand the investment industry will react accordingly with trying to create supply the challenge with creating supply of product in crypto is that the SEC has not approved spot crypto like ETFs or, or mutual funds or what have you, which which tend to be the preferred Im- implementation vehicles for you know large allocators and advisors who want something that can appear along the you know the rest of a client's portfolio in Schwab or TD statements or things like that. And so um, what has been approved, and I think they're the, again the average person probably doesn't understand the nuance here because. We'll just see like Bitcoin in the name, but like we have had a few Bitcoin futures um, ETFs and mutual funds approved, and those are out there. That that is not the same as owning Bitcoin directly. There's some, you know, uh, performance headwinds likely to come from Bitcoin futures in the form of roll costs when you're rolling one futures contract to another. So there, you're, you're you're likely going to underperform Bitcoin potentially by a sizable margin by owning those types of products. There's also some tax complexities uh, embedded in, in owning them via futures versus uh, directly. There's also like the grayscales of the world where like, yeah, like you, they trade on public exchanges um, and, and they have ticker symbols and you see their price every day. And so I think people assume, oh yeah, like that's the Bitcoin. 
ETF. Like, no, it, it's not an ETF. Um, and, and in fact, that particular that fund and others like it have traded at significant premiums and discounts to the underlying net asset value. And if you just look at a chart of like performance of you know something like grayscale versus Bitcoin, like there's a huge delta. Um, so I, I think for most people, the, the best bet and, and probably will continue to be the, to be the best bet is you want to you want exposure to the asset class. You should probably get it in the most pure, you know, direct way possible. I think, but I think for the average investor, like they they want that convenience. They want the 1099 tax reporting. They want the Schwab statement. They want the like I can just want to click a button and buy it with a ticker symbol. But that doesn't really exist today in in a, in a pure form. Um, and so where a lot of people are fine, like opening a Coinbase or Gemini or some other avenue to get access to crypto, there, there's a big audience of people out there that they just don't understand. They don't know what to do. It seems like too much effort or work to do it. And they're just like, eh, I'll just wait until an ETF comes. So we we get questions a lot from clients. Um, you know, some some clients, you know, certainly more um, crypto curious or, or 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 knowledgeable than others, and, and many of some of them already have existing allocations that they made. Um, but but a lot of people that are that are new to the space are just more more so coming to us for our our thoughts on it. It's not like, hey, I, you know, this is crazy, or hey, I I need exposure now. It's like, what do you guys think? Like, should we be doing something here? And I think for, I mean, for us and for a lot of advisors, it's been a tough area to kind of tap dance around because even if you have conviction in crypto as an, as an investment based for, for compliance reasons and, and other reasons, it's been a hard thing to like draw a line in the sand and say like, we're recommending this in our, all, our, all per, our portfolios. It's still a little bit polarizing. Like for as many clients that you know, come to us saying they're, they're interested in getting access and, and want, want exposure to the asset class, there's also many that, that want nothing to do with it. It's too volatile for them or they, Still view it as as you know magic internet money, you know that that, <laughs> that whole you know narrative. So I, I think it's it, it's tough for us to make a blanket assessment that hey, all of our clients should or should not own some crypto. I think it's something that we want to continue to educate ourselves on and educate our clients on and help them make an informed decision that they're ultimately responsible for and and that they're equipped to to navigate. And we can kind of be their guide and help them do it responsibly if they're going to go down that path. But I think we we don't want to just like you know, set, send them out in the wild, wild west, and say, oh, yeah, "Oh, you want? Yeah, just go open a Coinbase account and like go go nuts." Because then <laughs> some bad things could happen if we don't have like guardrails in place. So we're we have we haven't figured out like what we're doing yet in the space, but, but it's a it's a high topic of conversation and something that I'm I'm optimizing some solution that we can offer clients there. But you know, I, I think it's 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 definitely a hot topic of conversation in the financial advice space right now because. Um, Again, maybe some advisors are comfortable with the the products out there and say, "Hey, like it's got crypto or Bitcoin in the name. That's all I need." <laughs> you know, but but they're they're whether it's like there's funds that own like publicly traded crypto based companies like the Coinbase's of the worlds and others, or like things like MicroStrategy that just have a bunch of it on their you know balance sheet. But again, like that, that's a little bit. It's not direct exposure to to the asset class. So yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's, I, I would love to have the like let's let's help you build conviction conversation. I don't I don't know where you are with it personally, but I'm I'm very curious about what 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 are you waiting for? Like, if you if if the conviction was a given, um, would it take like a specific ETF uh, uh, ETF directly to the asset? Would it take some sort of um, very simple direct custody vehicle for you to feel confident allocating? Like, because I it, just as a representative of some of the industry at the very least like that's a really 
that feels like a big domino to fall. I'm really curious about like what uh, what that'll look like in a few years. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of advisors. I mean, I guess I'll start with me personally. Like, I do have conviction in the space. I'm invested in crypto, but that just because I, I'm doing that doesn't mean it might it's right for every client that we work with. Um, I think the big you know, safeguards or hurdles that people are looking for in our industry are, are solutions around custody and security, um, and just and just kind of more regulatory guidance. I think you, there's probably not a lot of advisors that want to be like a guinea pig here and that want to be like first mover because they're worried about the, like like for all the potential upside. Like, what's the downside for me if something bad happens? Um, whether it be performance related or security related, um, whatever the case might be. So I think there's that element to it as well um is there a missing product or service that needs to exist that we should go build or someone listening should go build i think there's some built i mean there's definitely a few firms out there that are trying to, to build those on ramps for advisors not i mean that's I, no pun intended because there is one called on ramp uh, <laughs> that my, my friend tyrone uh, started but like uh, so there's there's stuff like you know on ramps there's, there's other groups out there that are trying to be that conduit between advisors and um, and their end clients that solve some of those those concerns or issues around around crypto, um, but I think the, I think eventually it'll get there. I think there's too much demand. It's too it's becoming too sort of large of an asset class to ignore. Um, whereas a few years ago, I, I think that wasn't really the case. It was still sort of on the fringes. But it, for something that many would categorize as an alternative investment, I mean, it gets a lot of mainstream attention for something that's you know alternative. And so I, I you know it. it Hard to say what it'll look like in a few years, but I, you know, I got I got to believe it's more of a a when, not if, for for a lot of folks um, in terms of ultimately getting there because I think there is that that pent up demand of um, people that want want access, but they they want to do it um, in a more convenient or comfortable way. Yeah, I mean the the thing that um, I don't, I don't want to say keeps me up at night, but a, a potential future that is particularly alarming, I think, for the like you know, the 6040 or the whatever comes after the 6040 is that I think there's a potential for a lot of value to accrue outside of the stock market for the first time, certainly in li- my living memory and like maybe in the last couple centuries. Um, and that like, you know, owning a global index fund is not enough to just capture the tailwinds of crypto because value may accrue to tokens. And if those don't get into the get into company coffers in one way or another like you you, it's possible to just miss it um i have no idea if that's true or how that's going to work but um the difference between holding tokeny holding tokens and holding equities is like meaningful um well i think there's also the the gray area for advisors and like i mean at least for bitcoin and, and ETH, it's been clear like these are not securities Whereas yeah, there's other, there's other yeah. crypto assets where it's still very much in the air whether or not the, they are securities. And if, if it gets decided that these are and they're unregistered, that creates another, you know, kind of headwind for adoption, I think, for some of the um, kind of non-blue chip areas. So, I, I mean, again, like the, the, the upside case is, is certainly there and there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to be, you know, optimistic about for potential future there with DeFi and Web3 and, and all the, you know, fill in your favorite buzzword for what the next, you know, 10 to 20 years for the internet could look like. Um, and, and a lot of really potentially, you know, attractive, um, you know, things on the horizon. But I, I think, um, 
it's just it's just, it's weird. It's just a very strange place for advisors to find themselves in. Yeah, and it, it's all. I mean, you're no, almost a little hamstrung, like uh, uh, you know, in some ways, like being constrained by the law, um, and the classification of specific securities means you're almost by definition a not a late mover, but a after the chasm mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and I think too, I think it's like timing can be everything in, in crypto, like because of the huge drawdowns that can occur, like. I think like, like, you know, even for, for those that are ultimately going to make some sort of allocation, like probably wise to like leg into it and not put every, put everything you're planning on putting in all, all at once, like maybe dollar cost average it. Cause like the last thing you want to do is just get, uh, you know, a bit of unlucky, uh, you know, bad luck and, and you put it in right at the top and now you've got a 60%, you know, hole to climb out of, uh, which could take some time. So um, it's tough. I, I think the other area that probably is a struggle for advisors is a lot of what we do is planning based and trying to come up with expected returns um, for clients based on different asset classes in their whole portfolio. And for an asset class that has no cash flows and very limited history and, and, and data around it, it's hard to come up with like a reasonable, like what is the expected return of Bitcoin over the next 20 years? Like if I'm trying to, project out a client's retirement plan for the next 20 to 30 years and have some sort of like, you know, assumed rate of return. Like what, what are we, we can't just assume, you know, the last 10 years of Bitcoin returns to the next 10 years. Like that's kind of silly. Whereas when you have like an asset class like stocks, um, you, you, well, you know, if you look at the long his, history of stocks, it's kind of in that like 10% annualized return. And if you look at like 20 to 30 year periods for stocks, you get very little variability. So you have a higher degree of reliability and consistency of like over a long enough period, you're not guaranteed, but you're likely to make somewhere, you know, plus or minus a couple a couple percent from this long-term average. Whereas with something like crypto, it's like really hard to come up with that assumption. Like what what should I be putting into this <laughs> return optimizer? And, and, and what, what should I be assuming that ETH is going to give me for the next 20 years? It's just so uncertain and so volatile. So I think that's the other area that gives advisors pause. They just don't know how to fit it in from like a portfolio optimization context. It's like, yeah, we can always look at the prior year returns, but that doesn't tell us anything informative about the future. Yeah, interesting. And, and that goes back to the kind of mandate to uh, preserve wealth and protect the long-term planning. Um, you know, not not a, it's not a make my client rich as quickly as possible, <laughs> despite all risks mandates. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm curious about the process of, of writing this book um, and because you've been blogging a long time. Um, how, how does blogging compare to booking for you? A- apples and oranges. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's been my yeah. experience as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but it, yeah, just, it, it was like, uh, it was a struggle at first. It's like, it was, I remember those first like few chapters. It was just like, like hitting my head on the wall some, some days because he just felt like nothing was coming out. <laughs> I was doing a lot of like a lot of reading, a lot of research, but it was relative to sitting down and cranking out a blog post. It was just a, a whole different animal altogether. So, and, and knowing um, that it's in print, locked forever, versus like, ah, fuck it, I'll it, publish a blog a post, I'll edit that next week. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a different feeling too. Even just like little things like typos. Um, Every, I think every book has at least one typo. And I oh god, yeah, people are still DMing couple, me like, about typos in the book. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I know. And <laughs> the, the nice, the nice thing is with the e, with the ebook, they can fix them pretty quickly. 
Um, and then if they do another round of prints and stuff, they can fix the, the ones in the hard copy. But like those are out there permanently. Like, even if they're minor and you're the only one that notices them, with a blog post, you can just go back in and quickly, you know, update it or something. Well, so, nobody's like, not buying your book because of a because of a typo. Nobody. No, no, they, yeah. Who cares? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, the author is going to care more about that stuff than anyone else. But um, I, I think once I got in a good, I found it hard to start. But then once I got into a rhythm, it like I, I, I like cranked it. It was weird. Like I almost did like nothing on it and like made zero to little progress like initially, and then. I think just ba- based on like a kick in the ass for my wife and, and <laughs> like, hey, I need you to finish this so you can like get back to normal life. And it was kind of like I-, I pushed off my deadline enough times with the publisher that I was like, okay, like time to like finish this thing. And so then I got into a better rhythm and yeah. developed, better, developed better habits and really just Sh- like shout out to Harriman House, your your publisher, Morgan Housel's publisher. They're 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 finding this us finance nerds very yeah they supporting they, us a lot. They've got the FinTwit market yeah. like cornered at, at this point. And they obviously had a, a ton of success with Morgan's book, which is fantastic. He's sold over a million copies. So, listeners, if you're if you're thinking about buying that, that's our objective now is to beat Morgan, and we gotta we gotta <laughs> sell more sell more copies than him. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's make let's make this uh, let's get to a million as quick. Yeah, make as make can. Morgan cry. Um, <laughs> help help will retire. The uh, yeah. it, it's it is a really um, how long have you been working on this book? Uh, like the, I, I dug when I was writing a blog post this week, I, I wanted to dig up the first email I got from my editor, um, who at the time I, I didn't know at all. And it was like October 26th of 2017, which was literally just him dropping in my inbox of, Hey, Hey, I, I saw someone shared one of your blog posts. I really liked it. I, I scrolled through your Twitter, you know, timeline a little bit and like what I saw, like any interest in writing a book. And I was like, Oh, like, Hey, I'm very flattered. B, I no, I haven't been thinking about it, but I would actually be very interested because if I'm being honest with myself, that's something I would have always wanted to do. I just, it just wasn't like, you know, front and center for me at that point in my life. But I, I you know, I was like, Hey, let's try to figure something out and let's talk about different concepts. And so, you know, it, it was kind of like a, a loose conversation on like what, what the book would be about for like a year. Just like, there wasn't like a super sense of urgency to, to do it like immediately. And then they were patient about it. So we ultimately landed on this concept and I got excited about it. They got excited about it. And it was like mid 2019 that we decided to move forward and, and, and sign the deal. And then, you know, I, I, my intention was actually to have it come out like around this time last year. Um, but um, to, to kind of rewind a little bit. So 2019, I had some big life events occur. <laughs> I had my first child. Um, and then we were also in the process of, of merging our uh, RA into uh where I work now, which is Savant. Prior to that, I was I was at Huber Financial Advisors, which is an RA my dad founded. So, you know, a merger is a lot of work um, and integrating. So it was like kind of like like having a little kid at home and um, doing this merger. I just like I just didn't have the time to be honest. So um, they, the publisher was super patient with me and understanding. And there was hey, we'll, we'll go at your pace. And so with the pandemic and with not having a social life anymore, I was like okay, like I, my weekends are pretty pretty free and clear <laughs> for a while. So I should probably get back to this book thing. And so, you know, here we are today. But in hindsight, I'm like, you know what? 2021 seems like a better year for an alt book to come out uh, than 2020 ended up being because, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, markets have gotten more expensive on the stock side. Bonds, you know, are negative for the year. So if there's ever a time where people are looking for diversification beyond those two two areas, now is probably the time. So I, I didn't plan it that way, but maybe got a little bit lucky, hopefully. But uh, 
yeah, super excited. It was it was a lot of work, but I think definitely worth it. And I'm I'm really happy with with the final product. And you know, obviously, hope readers are too. It's it's incredible. Um, I mean, it's a great book. It's a ton of detail. Um, that's what made me think about how how long it took you because I mean, there's a ton of uh, graphics and charts and references, which takes a ton of time, and people um, tend to not appreciate how that, much work goes into that. That part was the most tedious, most time consuming, and I definitely oh God, yeah. I did yep. not I didn't know what to expect there. And nobody that, tells you that that's coming because if they did, you wouldn't do it. Yeah, and that, that <laughs> came like. I, it was like a lot of things I dropped in there, like, and then I was like, at the end, I'd be like, okay, I'll worry about figuring out how to like get per, get permission or get like whatever later, and, and like it won't be a big deal. But then that that was like a project uh, in and of itself. Like once like once the manuscript was kind of like, okay, this looks good. Like they came back to me like, okay, like <laughs> don't want to alarm you, but you've got a lot of work to do. To, like <laughs> get like you know all yeah. these approvals from all these third parties and this and that and like. So I just kind of put my head down and cranked through it. But that was, uh, yeah, you're, you're kind of right. If someone told me the, how much work got involved, I might, I might have reconsidered how much uh, of that stuff that I used. The number of times you think you're done and then someone comes and just shoves your head back underwater is, is uh, <laughs> probably the yeah. most brutal part. Um, but yeah, it, it is really, uh, and prepare yourself now because you'll start getting a lot of uh, DMs and emails from people who want to write a book because you you are now, by definition, an expert in book writing. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it is a very, uh, I don't know, I, I, I've never worked with a publisher, but I, I assume a lot of the value just comes from having some, having stakes and a deadline and like someone to just be standing there tapping their foot being like, you said you were going to finish this shit. You better keep going. <laughs> yeah, they were um, phenomenal to work with. So if anyone is, works in investing and wants to write like some sort of investing or finance book, definitely talked to Harriman house. They were a real pleasure to work with. And, um, Craig, the editor there was like just a great sounding board and like really honest, but like fair feedback on stuff and really helped kind of fine tune, you know, things. And, and you know, once it's particularly like the first couple chapters I shared with him just cause I, I didn't want to write the whole thing and then like send it. And he's like, start over. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. more like understanding, like after the first couple chapters, like what he's like looking for and where, where he's going to want changes that I think really helped me out with the other chapters where I kind of already had in my head, like, you know, just keeping things certain, certain things top of mind, like, you know, cut the word count down, <laughs> like get to the point, you know, make proper transitions from one section to the next, like all things that like, you know, seem obvious, but you don't necessarily think about while you're, you know, writing it. Um, but I think like also just like the help around like translating visual components to print was huge. And they've got a great like design team, like the cover itself. I thought, turned out great and I, I, yeah like like uh, that's nothing i could have done on my own or, or, or what have you so i just like having their their designer to help with different concepts there was was cool uh, and that, was, that part was a lot of fun uh so yeah yeah it was just I, I was delighted that someone wanted to work with me and, and even more delighted that it was a, a publisher that i had a great experience with yeah um yeah it's a, it's a remarkable book i really want to sit here and just like pull your string on 95 other alternative assets. Um, but I won't do that because that's what's in the book and people should just go read it. There's a ton of cool um, stuff in here. It's, I would say it's probably like a, I don't know, do you classify it as like a 201 or a 301 level book? Like what are the prerequisites uh, to reading this like, book? I, I would say 201. Like I, I kind of wrote it primarily for like financial advisors and other professional investors or allocators that are just generally seeking to be more conversant and comfortable with alternatives so that they feel 
more more equipped to you know understand them and implement them and communicate them to their clients. And so you know some some level of of you know, investment or financial sophistication is assumed. Um, that being said, like we're, we're going to be sharing it with a number of our clients. Um, where, where yeah, like maybe it's a, some parts are a bit over their heads, but at the same time, I think it'll resonate enough that they can understand most of it um, as well. So I, I think there is a, a retail audience for the book, but that's not necessarily who it was written to, you know, first and foremost. But uh, you know, so kind of starting with that investment professional, uh, and then I think there's an audience below, you know, a bit below that, but that's not necessarily who it's targeting. Yeah, I mean, if, for what it's, I found it very interesting. I'm a like rookie amateur kind of allocator of my own funds. Um, but well, it's and really I, interesting and I, and I, to just yeah, like I, I say, I, I kind of wrote it yeah. for myself ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the way I thought uh, about it, and um, I, I've always tried to like with my blogging and social media stuff, just like you know, write in a, an approachable, kind of plain language way. So I. I you know, sure, there's financial jargon and stuff in there because it is an investing book. But at the same time, I hope it's, you know, my I really I really wanted to come across as readable and not too dense, not too technical, and so hopefully it, it hit that objective. Yeah, it did. I, I actually think I mean the graphics help a ton. I, can, I know you put a lot of work into that too. Um, the, the stuff in particular, the kind of like uh, source of return stack, where you're like, hey, real estate is the asset. These are the all of the types, and in particular, you know, this comes from the specific yield. This comes from the leverage component of the yield this comes from the expected appreciation of the yield so um you know if you're tackling this without leverage like you can expect to lose this chunk it, it's a very um i, I mean I, I think visuals are always really helpful yeah so yeah there, there's plenty of that we throughout the book yeah cool uh well kudos for doing this um i i'm really like it, it feels like a kind of a very complicated signpost to like point me in a ton of different directions to like go learn about you know marketplace lending or you know convertible arbitrage or a ton of things <laughs> that i was just like oh i've been missing out on all these gains um oh, oh so I, I forgot to ask you one if um just humor me with with like a not financial advice asterisk with my dumb ass what is the YOLO portfolio because you have attributes for all these things, uh, like primary and secondary objectives, um, where like some are growth, some are diversification, some are you know liquidity. Um, what is like the maxed out, uh, like growth oriented portfolio, <laughs> um, for for wealth generation with like little to no, uh, risk. I would say it's funny, like I well. <laughs> little to no risk uh not tolerant intolerance like give me the risk give uh, me the returns like I, ignore I would the say because because certain alternative categories are meant to really just be diverse buyers and have lower expected returns in stocks but still play a role because they're you know diversifying and uncorrelated what have you um so there's kind of there's there's different buckets and different objectives for different so I, if the objective is i want a portfolio of alternatives that's going to outperform my public market stock allocation over time, that would probably tilt you heavily towards, if you have the tolerance for the illiquidity, private equity, venture capital, and crypto would probably be the areas, maybe certain parts of like real estate, like opportunistic type real estate. But um, beyond that, a lot of the other alternatives are, are, are meant to you know give you meaningful returns, but probably won't be as high as your, as your equity allocation over a long period of time. Um, it's really meant to address, I think, more the the, the uh, deficiencies of the bond allocation going forward. Yeah, interesting. Um, 
but it's, it's giving me a ton to chew on and think about. And I didn't even know there was kind of like liquid accessible options for stuff like timber land or farmland or like it, there's just so many like interesting little like hmm, um, that I feel like if I got 12 hours of conversation with you, I still wouldn't quite get to all of the like, oh, cool, interesting. Um, so it, it's a really good um, I don't know. It's a great overview. I, thank you for writing it. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that with everybody and taking the time on your book launch day, taking a break yeah. from all your admiring tweets to, uh, <laughs> talk about it with me. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, pr- probably not a good idea for me to sit around and like stare at Twitter and LinkedIn and, and oh, social no, media today, all day. No. Today, that's what you should be doing. Just, <laughs> just like revel in it, have a drink, you know, no, I know I'll, I'll, I'll have a nice, uh, I think we're going to get some good takeout tonight and probably a bottle of wine with my wife and daughter at home and just, uh, you know, celebrate the the moment. It's, it's, it feels weirdly anticlimactic because it's not like nothing and then all of a sudden the book release date happens and it's like off to the races. I feel like I've been doing a bunch of podcasts and media already. Like the copies have been out there. So like it weirdly, I, I, I think months ago, I would have thought this would have been like a, a big day. It would have yeah. felt different, but it just like it, it, in a lot of ways, it felt like a, an, any other day. But uh, I was just like, it's officially sort of out there now. So really appreciate you having me on today. Um, it's been fun to get to know you a little bit over the last couple of years. I know we've had a, a couple of good uh, times down at Capitol Camp in, in Columbia, Missouri, and hopefully again next year. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of your work and, and, and I'm delighted to be a guest today. So thanks for uh, taking the time with me. Yeah, you're the, you're the latest in a, a parade of Capitol Camp friends who come come through the <laughs> podcast. It seems uh, like a like a trend. Um, yeah, this is, this is good stuff. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you for all of this financial advice. <laughs> asterisk (laughs) not financial (laughs) advice (laughs) thanks Phil All right, thanks Eric appreciate you hanging out with me and Phil today thank you so much for listening if you liked this episode you will probably also enjoy my talk with Mitchell Baldridge who is the financial planner and accountant that I use personally we talk about a lot of the same things and Mitchell is really an awesome guy and another wealth of knowledge um, in a similar domain but before that Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.